This is my first Easter here, so this is a very special time. Um, but I do want to thank all of the people who have worked so hard this week to put so many services on and to do so much. I was talking to some of you, and I said, we really need to just throw a huge party for all the volunteers who have worked so hard. We just don't have anybody to put it on. But no, I love you guys, and I'm so thankful. I'm really excited about Bethel's future, and uh, we have plenty to announce and to work out over the next couple months as we go forward um, to carry on a great, great church. Well, happy Easter, you guys. And, uh, and I want to explain the Easter story this morning a little differently. And so let me begin by asking you this. I want you to think about what you know, whether you're a Christian or not. I want you to think about what you know about Easter. And I want you to think about this question. Why did Jesus bear the scars? Why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did Jesus rise from the dead? And what does it have to do with you today in San Francisco sitting in a pew on Sunday morning? What is this designed to do? And I want you to think of your life as I think of of mine. And I want you to think of scars. It seems to be a theme this time of year, scars, the scars of the Lord. But I want you to think of your scars, and all scars tell a story. I have a massive scar on my stomach. And uh, this scar tells a story of when I was about 10 years old. I was in the backyard, and we, uh, we were raised on wiffle ball, right? You guys, wiffle ball. Okay, okay. And my brother hit a shot, dead center field in the backyard, wherever that was, towards the kitchen window. And my mom used to have these rose bushes, and she would cut them at an angle. Not sure why, especially when it was in center field. And uh, I can remember running after this ball. I had to beat my brother, and I dove for this ball and almost impaled myself on this rose, on this stem thing. And so I've got this nice little scar that tells a story. Every time I see the scar, I remember that, and I kind of grin. At the time, I didn't grin. But every one of our scars has a story attached to it. But in all reality, and just to be super transparent this morning as human beings... We have other scars. We have the scars in our hearts. And these tell a story of our lives. They are constant reminders of of things gone wrong, of heavy situations, of our stories not quite working out the way we we thought they would. Um, For many of us, stories of failure and regrets. We see them, we feel them, And like all good scar tissue, they they won't go away. They fade over time just a little. But these scars in our hearts, they, they always remind us, don't they? They always remind us. And we end up in a bit of a self made tomb. Because of these scars, because of the regrets of our lives, we we feel that in certain areas of our lives, some more than others. We feel as if we have rolled our own stone across, and it's kind of that cold, dark, frustrating place. And oh, if we could receive some type of practical resurrection and see that type of stone rolled away and come forth victorious over those old scars, it would be a great day. Amen moment right there.
starting with me. We would all like nothing more than to rewrite our stories in a thousand different ways. And so I just want to be daring enough to ask you this morning, what if we could? What if, what if somehow there's a power somewhere that could enter into those hearts of ours and take that scar tissue and actually do something radical with it and use it to, to catapult us forward in a dawning of a new day, a, a new story? What if Jesus Christ has that much love, grace, power, and ability to do just that? Well, I want to tell you of a, a true story this morning about a man, a, a man who I resonate and uh, I feel so much like, and that man is Peter. And Peter felt greatly. Peter felt people, I mean, this guy felt people miserably. And he felt God. And he carried terrible scars because of it. And wherever you are at today, as you hear this story about this man unfold, you're going to see yourself in the story. And here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that Christ's scars tell a different story. And when they, they collide with our scars, something precious and powerful can happen. I'm living proof. But there's something you got to know before we meet this man, Peter. If you are full of regret, despair, if you're on that verge of collapsing, you don't know where to go, you're angry, you're confused, maybe you came to this city thinking that it would, it would reveal new ways and new, new opportunities, and maybe it's just not worked out the way you, you thought it would. There's something you need to know about Christ to understand this story about Peter. He delights in bringing dead things back to life. So let's do this. Let's turn to Luke 22. If you have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you. If you've never cracked a Bible, cool. We're fine. We'll put it all right here. And let's meet our guy. Let's meet Peter. Who is this guy? Let's meet Peter. A man who needed Christ to resurrect him. A man who needed Christ to roll his stone away from the coldness of his brokenness and his failure. And he needed Christ to resurrect him and allow him to walk free from those things in newness of life. Who is this guy, Peter? Well, I'll tell you quickly a little bit about him. Uh, he has a foot-shaped mouth, number one. And that's why I love this guy, because I see myself in this guy. He rushes headlong into everything and thinks later, right? You with me on that? He's my kind of guy. He gets himself in all kinds of trouble. But the first thing you got to know is he's a Christian. He, he is a Christian. And, and let me just say, if you're here and you're not a Christian, or you are battered by some type of weird Christian experience, I want to lay it all out right for you, just transparently and honestly right here. Us Christians, we're a mess. Alright? None of this false front stuff. We're a mess. We need a savior. We need daily grace because we are still working through it. So this guy is a Christian and he's a mess. And when I say he's a Christian, you say, well, what is a Christian anyway? You know, what's the matter with you guys? There's Catholics and Christians and all these churches. What, what is this thing? Well, if I can condense it like this, uh, one becomes a Christian by doing a few things, a few powerful transformative things. One is realizing that we were made by God and for God. 
And here's the whole problem, and this was the first 20 years of my life. I'm made by God and I'm made for God, but I have a problem. I have a lot of problems, but I have a problem. And in the Christian uh, world, we call it sin. And if you don't believe that, just talk to my wife. I realized one day that the reason I was trying to find life in a thousand things is because I was looking in the wrong place. Um, whether it was uh, drugs or alcohol or crime or success or identity or whatever your story is, here's the problem. We're looking for something. We're looking for identity. We're looking to belong. We're looking for value. We're looking for love. We're looking for love. And when you look in the wrong places to try to fill those voids, they're God-shaped holes. We can't do it. I tried, my wife and I tried for 20 plus years Success and education and partying and you name it. Until one day I heard this guy who I thought was just crazy. I walked into a church and he began to tell everybody about Jesus Christ. And he he told this story that you were made by God and for God. And you can find peace and, and completion if you can come back to that God. But he said, here's the problem. That God cannot accept you because you're sinning. He has to do something with your sin. He's got to get it out of the way. So there's kind of this free road back to him. And so I said, well, what am I supposed to do? I'm certainly not going to be good enough. I can't stop doing wrong. As good as I am, when you put me up against a perfect and holy God, I'm going to fall short every time. And so he began to unravel this thing we call the good news, the gospel. He said, It's not about you getting better. It's not about you cleaning it up. It's not, as a matter of fact, you need to come in as broken and as dirty as you are. And you need to realize that Jesus did all the cleaning up and the good work for you. He lived a perfect life for you. And he not only did that, but he went to the cross and he paid your penalty for sin for you. God judged him for you. It's an amazing plan between God and Jesus for us. And Jesus rose from the dead. And now if you will just put your faith in who Jesus is and come to him, this is what I was being told, and come to him the best way you know how and ask him to forgive you of your sins and and to save you. He will not only bring you into perfect peace with God the Father and create a relationship between you and the Father, but he will begin to change your heart. And the whole time I'm thinking it's too messy in there. And sure enough, when Jessica and I got saved on a, on a church morning just like this, it was the beginning of a new story. That's our guy, Peter. He's a Christian. He's saved. He was a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. So far, so good. Until he had a tragic Friday morning and really just a tragic weekend. Have you ever had one of those weekends that you just wish never happened? Like permanent scars, like that happened on a weekend and I've lived with it for 15 years. Well, Peter had one of those weekends and he starts out well. Let me introduce you to how he started out. Luke 22, verse 24. Check out the screens behind. He's a rather confident young man. Verse 24, imagine Jesus walking down a dusty road, and he's got 12 men behind him. That's his crew. Verse 24, a dispute also arose among the crew as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Can you imagine that? Great job, Jesus followers. Like we're all following Jesus, arguing who's the greatest. 
Oh, by the way, just before that, something happened. They tried to cast out demons and couldn't. A couple minutes later, they're arguing about who's the greatest. That's just how we roll. Verse 25, and he, he said to them, he turns around. The king of the Gentiles exercised lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. In other words, you guys want to rule. You want to be good and clean and exalted, and you want to rule. Verse 26, but not so with you. Christian, that's not how you operate. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. We're not on a power trip. We're on a service trip, a humility journey. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. He's saying, look at me. I serve people. I'm here to serve and be the lowest as a leader. Christian, that's you. So Peter's, he, he's processing this. Man, this, this wasn't in the package deal. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Basically, what he says is, look, you can, you can do the, uh, the ruling thing one day on the new earth, but right now you serve. Now, Peter wants to be the guy. He wants to be the head dog. But in verse 31, look at this. Simon, Simon, that's, that's Peter. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. He wants, to, he wants to take you out because you're the leader. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, I love this guy, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I will not deny you, Jesus. Satan or no Satan, I'm better than him, I'm bigger than him, and I am devoted to you. I don't know about you, but rebuking God is weird. 34, Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you, that you even know me. He starts big. He starts as a leader. And yet this thing is coming. It's, it's Friday. It's Good Friday. It's all coming to a head now. And Peter is going to, in just a few hours... As Jesus is arrested, Peter's life is going to literally come undone as he fails his guys and as he fails God. Ever been there? Luke 22, verse 54. Later, Jesus is arrested, and he's going to be tried and then go to the cross. The guards, the Roman guards came in verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. So Peter knows he has just messed up. He has watched Jesus be arrested. And now he's starting to realize he's not the man he thought he was. And so now as Jesus is being carried off, uh, led into these trials, Peter's following from a distance. He wants to try to make this up. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, so there's some people watching... As Jesus is being tried at night, and they sat down together, Peter sat down among them. He, he kind of goes into the, the place where the fire is, and he can see Jesus up on a little bit of a high rise as Jesus is being tried. Uh, uh, come on, God. Verse 56, then a servant girl. 
This servant girl knocks Peter out. Seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely, Adam said, this man also was with him. You imagine that, Peter sitting around with some adults and he's trying to hide out as a follower of Jesus. He's just rejected and failed Jesus. And there's this little girl there, you know how that is. And she's like, hey, mister, hey, mister, aren't you, aren't you a follower of Jesus? 57, but he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. I don't know Jesus. I can feel that moment right there. You know it's wrong. It's breaking your heart, but there's so much fear of man. 59, and after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a, a Galilean. He speaks with an accent. Verse 60, but Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, just as Jesus said. Now watch this. And the Lord turned and he looks into Peter's soul. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Man, to get that day back. Anybody have a day like that? Man, to get that day back. Where did Peter go? For the next eight hours, ten hours, twelve hours, Jesus is going to be beaten. He's going to be tried and he's going to go to the cross. Where was Peter during this time? I've always wondered this. Peter's heartbroken. He knows he's failed. He's, he's completely failed his team. He has failed his family, and he's, he has failed God's. And where was Peter while Christ was being crucified? Where was he hiding? Could he hear the crowds as he was maybe a couple of streets away at the bottom of the hill? Was he hiding in an alleyway, weeping? Where was he on that Friday night as he knew Jesus was dead? Where did he sleep? Did he sleep? Did he wander the streets of Jerusalem? Wondering how he's ever going to face his wife, his friends. How about Saturday? Maybe he slept in an alley and he woke up that Saturday morning hoping it was a bad dream. Maybe walking back up to to the hill and not, not knowing what really took place, but hoping with all his heart that maybe it was a mistake and then he realizes he did it. He can't, he can't dare face the other followers of Jesus that he spent three years with. And maybe you've been there. Isn't it amazing how one small decision can seem to wreck you? It, it can't. It can't. It's Saturday night. After a couple days of wandering the streets, no doubt, Peter eventually finds his way to the home of one of the disciples, one of his fellow Christians. He knocks on the door, no doubt, and uh, the door opens, and with his head bowed, he, he walks in. They, they don't have to say a word. They, they know what Peter's been through. He has failed them as the leader, and he has failed Jesus. Saturday night, he probably crashes hard in a back room, if he even sleeps at all, maybe rehearsing what he's going to do when he goes home and tells his wife. And maybe he finally dozes off in exhaustion Saturday night. 
And then the sun begins to rise on Sunday morning. It's Easter. It's Easter morning. The first Easter morning. And maybe as the, uh, the light shines through the window, Peter is awakened and maybe he just stays huddled in the corner thinking about what he's done. The guilt, the shame. But then we pick up something interesting in Mark's gospel in chapter 16 pertaining to the events. In verse 1, the scripture says, when the Sabbath was passed, when Saturday was over, when Saturday night was over, when Peter sleeps through the night in this, uh, this fellow Christian's home, Sunday morning, a couple of faithful, awesome, amazing women, amen, ladies, that's your little plug, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. So they slip out of probably the same house really early in the morning, and they bring these nice uh, spices to lay on the body of Jesus as uh, the body would eventually begin to decay. It's early, early Sunday morning. Peter is still in the house. He's dizzy with guilt. These ladies make their way through the dark to the tomb of Jesus and fully expect to see him dead. Verse 2, and very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen. So there it is. Get Get the scene in your mind. There it goes. The first rays of light begin to peek through over the hills, and the dew begins to melt, and these ladies start to see the shape of the tomb through the nights. They went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb. It's, it's huge. How are we going to get in there? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. This is, this is a proclamation of Jesus' victory. The stone is rolled, rolled, rolled away, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side. He's an angel. He's dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Yeah, they tend to do that. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See, look. See the place where they laid him. He's gone. Now watch this. Verse 7. But go tell his disciples. Those who think that the mission has failed and they have failed Jesus. But watch what he does. But go tell his disciples and Peter. And Peter. That he is going before you to Galilee. Why, why Peter? Why the mention of Peter? Why not just go tell all the followers that it's okay, he's risen? Why Peter? Well, let me ask you this question. How do you see Christ when you fell? How do you see him? I'll tell you how I see him. When I fell Jesus, which is daily, I, I think Jesus is mad at me. And I think we need like 48 hours away from each other before he's ready to kind of accept me back. And I think that's probably what Peter believed too. And it's a lie. It it doesn't work that way. Jesus doesn't work that way. Grace doesn't work that way. The gospel does not work that way. You cannot outrun the love of God and the forgiveness of God. No matter how far you have fallen, Peter, Jesus' love has not fallen one bit for you. So so make sure you tell Peter this thing's going to work out. And that's the message for us today as well. Tell Peter, the angel says to the ladies, tell Peter that Christ 
ability to clean things up is infinitely greater than Peter's ability to mess things up. And in Mark 16, 7, the angel says, let Peter know that Jesus is going before you. Tell Peter this is shepherd's talk. Jesus is going to lead Peter back to restoration and love. Tell him that Jesus will always lead him back when he falls. In other words, failure, Bethel. Failure cannot stop Jesus' love. Failure can only glorify Jesus' love. You get that? It took me three years to figure this out. So you get it in five seconds. Look at that. It took me years to figure this out, that after I sin, you know, the big ones or whatever, that instead of pushing God away and running from God like Adam and hiding, these are the moments, if I can work through it through the Holy Spirit and the gospel of grace, that I can actually see and glorify how powerful Jesus' love is right after I sin, that he, he will never leave me nor forsake me. There is therefore now no condemnation if you are saved in Christ Jesus. And so even after the lowest moments, I can glorify Jesus by realizing, man, his love has not dipped one bit for me. Mm. Now, as beautiful as all this talk is, as the angel says, you make sure you tell Peter that Jesus is relentlessly hunting him down in love. As beautiful as all of this talk is, the, the message really never got back to Peter. Look at Mark 16, 8. And they went out. This is, this is the two ladies who, who were given this message by the angel. Make sure you tell Peter it's going to work out. Jesus loves them. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone. Great. Like Peter needs this. He's hiding in the house. He needs this message. Well, as a matter of fact... They did finally get back to the house, and they burst through the door, and they tell Peter, he's alive, he's alive, he's risen. And, and Peter gets this, this little moment of hope, and he bolts out of the house, and he begins to chuck up the road, and he's getting to the tomb as fast as he can, because he thinks, well, maybe if I can maybe fight off some of the Roman guards or something like that, maybe I can make it back to Jesus. Maybe I can pay him back. And Peter gets up there, and Jesus is nowhere to be found. It's, it's early Easter morning, and Peter's at the tomb, and the tomb is empty. And so Peter apparently makes the long trek back to his home, still a broken man, still replaying the failure over and over in his head, not only of his friends, but his family, and even his God. I can't imagine how long that walk was back to his house. And do you know that the disciples, his, his, his guys that followed him, they were with him. How quiet a walk was that walk? And they're all watching to see what Peter would do. I feel like that as a pastor sometimes. Uh, if you're a leader in any capacity, even of a home or whatever, company, and you felt, it's a hard situation. Well, it's, it's crossed all of our minds. It's, it's often easier not to try to live for Christ at that level anymore. To kind of take a, a lower level of Christianity. Uh, because we fear 
failing him again and going through it again. Amen? Right? Fair enough? And so look at what our guy does. Look at what uh, old Peter does. John 21. And I'm almost done. After this, Jesus, verse 1, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter. So we get, we get the crew there. There's the crew. Verse 3, look at Peter's attitude. He's felled his friends, he's felled his family, and he's felled Jesus. And look at his attitude in verse 3. Oh, I have been there so many times. Simon Peter said to him, I am going back to what I know. I'm going fishing. This Christian thing, look, I, I, know I'm, I know I'm saved, but I'm not going to try this ministry thing. I'm not going to try this go hard for Jesus thing because I know I'm going to fall again. I, let, me just, let me just go back to my old life, my own job. You know, maybe I can do a little here and there for God, but, but let, me not, let me not be as radical anymore because I don't want to go down that road of failure. I don't want to feel this ever again. So I'm going, I'm going to go fishing. And I love the stumbling, bumbling followers. Yeah, 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 we will too. And this must have felt so good for Peter. It must have felt so familiar, that the smell of the salt water, the, the nets in the hands. Yeah, this is where I really belong, just right here. But this Christian thing, uh, Peter knew this, this world well. He couldn't fail here. And Peter is literally saying, this is where I belong. And I just got to say, really, Peter? Really? Don't you know God loves you too much to let you do that? Look at John 21. You ever try to walk away from God? Man, he can be frustrating. Like everywhere you look, there's his love. And you almost want to like just stop doing that, just condemn me. Like I don't want to go through this anymore. But everywhere you turn around, there's this reminder of grace. You're really going to go back to fishing, are you? John 21, verse 4. Just as day was breaking, perfect time in the coolness of, uh, of the temperature of the lake for fish to start surfacing so these guys can net them in their boats or whatever. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So here's the hunt, the violent love of Jesus. Violent because it will remove anything that comes in between you and him. His love is powerful. He's standing on the shore, and he's watching Peter fish. Peter's quit. Jesus said to them, I love this, verse 5. Children, do you have any fish? Now, I do some walking down. I think it's Pacifica. I think I'm, I think I'm in Pacifica at this point. And there's that big dock. You guys know what I'm talking about? Big stone dock thing. All right, now look, I'm not a fisher guy. If I'm walking out on that dock, I don't go like this. Hey, guys, have you caught anything? Now, to make it worse, really, the way this works out in the original language is this. Here's what Jesus did. Hey, guys, you haven't caught anything, have you? I'm definitely not doing that. These guys, you know, they got their super thick poles and they're doing their thing. Hey, guys, you haven't caught anything, have you? No, you're not going there. What is Jesus teasing out here? 
Children, do you have any fish? Children, you don't have any fish, do you? They answered him. Who's this guy? No! Who is that? Verse 6, he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some fish. They're probably thinking, this is our field. What are you talking about? So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Now let me tell you how desperate these guys are. They're listening to a total stranger. Man, when it rains or pours, when failure comes, failure comes. Like you even start failing at what you're good at when Jesus is trying to direct you. I have tried to not fully walk away from Jesus, but I failed him in certain areas of my life. And I thought, man, I'm just not going there again. I'm just going to do what I'm comfortable and what I know. And Jesus will make me fail there. He's like, just come on. I love you. Let me teach you something here. Come on back. Have faith. I'll walk with you. Look at our guy, verse 7. That disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John. He's Peter's buddy, follower of Jesus. He says to Peter, it's the Lord. Finally, there's the Lord. The last time Peter saw the Lord, he denied him. And even when we are not faithful, the Lord is always faithful to love us. I don't know what Jesus you've been taught, but that's Jesus. He put, up, he put on his outer garments where he was stripped for work. A real man's man there. He's just chucking clothes. They're working. And threw himself into the sea. Don't you love that guy? He just bombs in the water. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish. For there were not far from the land but about 100 yards off. So someone's got to be responsible. So the other guys bring the boat in and they bring the fish in. But do you see the real Jesus here? And do you see that colliding with where you're at today? He will not forsake you if you are a Christian. He will always love you. The scars on his hands are there to heal the scars in your hearts and let you know there's a new day today. Roll the stone away and in faith walk forth and do this again. Jesus is saying to Peter, rise and follow me again. The cross and the resurrection is all about infinite chances for us. And friends, do we really think that Christ went to the cross and all he endured and rose from the dead so that you and I can stay in our self-made tombs? You think he went through all of that? It reminds me of a, a story. Anybody from anybody a graduate from UCLA? Right. I'm still learning the politics of California, so that may have been a sore spot. I don't know. I'm just going gonna to move on. <laughs> years and years ago, years and years ago, 1929. During the 1929 UCLA Rose Bowl game, a man named Roy Regals recovered a fumble for UCLA. Follow me now. Somehow, <laughs> man, this is not good. Somehow, he became confused and ran 65 yards in the wrong direction. If you know nothing about football, that's bad. <laughs> One of his teammates went after him. <laughs> he's, like, he's sprinting to tackle Roy Regals. 
and he tackled him just before he scored for the other team. When UCLA attempted to punt, the other team blocked the kick and scored a safety, which seemed to seal the game. That strange play came in the first half, and everyone who was watching the game was asking the same question. What in the world is the coach of UCLA going to do with Roy Regals in the second half? During halftime, UCLA sat down, the football team sat down in the locker room, but Regal sat down in a corner. He put his face in his hands and he wept. The UCLA coach was quiet. No doubt he was trying to decide what to do with Roy Regals. The second half would start any minute. The, the UCLA coach looked at the team and said, Men, the same team that played the first half will start the second half. Everyone got up and started out except Regals. He didn't budge. Regals looked up and said, Coach, I can't do it to save my life. I've ruined you. I've ruined the University of California. I've ruined myself. I couldn't face that crowd in the stadium to save my life. Then the coach said, Roy, get back in the game. We've still got time. Regal's teammates would later say that they had never seen a man play football as Roy Regal's played that second half. Why? Grace. Another chance. This is your moment. A new day. Resurrection. Easter. And all of us need a fresh resurrection today from our own self-made tombs. And because of Christ's unfailing love, this morning is the morning our lives can begin again. And so for Christians, I don't know, maybe it means accepting Christ's relentless love and, and getting up and serving him again, knowing he loves you. And maybe for others who are not Christians, maybe it's about time you tasted the sweet Savior and the grace that he wants to give you this morning. Let's bow our heads in prayer. And I don't know where you're at this morning. But if you're not a Christian, I know what it's like. I was there for 20 years. And I want you to, I want you to know that you can trust the Lord. And maybe everything has fallen around you. I've been there. There is new life. There is an ending love that can be poured on you every second. There is a peace with God. And if you this morning are just weary of your old life, your old lifestyle, trying to find life in a thousand things, 
Why don't you turn from it in your heart this morning? Let it go. And the best way you know how, where you sit this morning, turn to the Lord and ask him to forgive you of your sins and to save you. I pray you do it this morning. And become a part of a church of broken people who will love you and accept you and and help you on your journey. I pray this would be a special Easter. And for us who are already in the love of the Lord, who are saved. Man, leave this place so full of life. You cannot outrun his love. And this morning, maybe you need to turn to him and run to his love. And so as the Lord has spoken to your heart, we'll give you some time to pray as the worship band sings.